Welcome to Curated Conversations, a podcast discussing issues related to diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, a nonprofit organization that fosters partnerships with leadership teams, employees, and individuals to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. I'm joined today by a group of wonderful guests, Shafiq Kamani, the founder of 810 Creative, a graphic designer, and the host of the podcast, 42 Souls, One Journey. Jillary Massa, the founder and lead consultant of Inclusive Leaders, Tristan Muhammad, lawyer and program officer at Pro Bono Students Canada. And Leila Atkinson, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging coordinator for Curated Leadership and fourth year student at Western studying economics and international relations. We're here to talk about the myth of the Muslim monolith. So the idea that in the media that we're presented with one idea of what a Muslim should look like, sound like, behave like, and be represented. So I'm going to start with the first question for all of you today. We have all had different lived experiences and come from different ethnocultural backgrounds. Can you tell me about your earliest experiences or a significant moment as a Muslim and within the religion of Islam? And I'll start with you, Jillary. A significant moment for me. I mean, my my family background is, is really interesting. My family is originally from Panama. My mother converted to Islam from Christianity when I was about seven years old. So I come from a very mixed um, family. And I feel as though I've, I've, as a result, have learned how to negotiate these settings where um, we, we are trying to reconcile our cultural identity with a religious identity. Um, and I think, I think that a, a big moment for me was being 16 and trying to explain to my father, who is not Muslim, about Islam and about my religious adherence. And my parents are, are divorced. And at this point, um, we, I had just reconnected with my dad. And I remember I'm um, going, taking him to an Arab restaurant and him telling me, oh no, I, you know, I t- told him that I, I eat halal. He's like, oh no, I don't eat curry. And I told him, <laughs> I told him, dad, like, that's not, it's an Arabic restaurant. Like it's not, that's not the kind of food that they serve here. And him eating the halal chicken. And I don't know what was going on in his mind, but he said, oh, it actually tastes like chicken. And so I think for me, it's really about kind of um, living through the ignorance of a lot of, lot of people and the ways in which um, the rhetorics about Muslims have seeped in, in um, even to the most, um, in the most innocent of ways in some cases. Um, and the burden that off, that often places on people, particularly young people, um, to have to navigate um, the conversations as they're trying to navigate their own identity and their own um, understanding of the faith and their relationship with the creator. Thank you, Jillary. I think I really resonate with that idea of negotiating spaces and identities and having to sort of explain that to folks because there doesn't seem a lot of under, like a lot of understanding about the multiplicity of who we are. So thank you so mm-hmm. much. Shafiq, you want to share with us? For me, it didn't come until my late 20s. Uh, I came out of the closet at that point and it was sort of aligned right with, uh, with 9-11. So it was a very interesting time where like up until then, I was like, this is what a Muslim looks like. It's what an Ismaili Muslim looks like. And I followed that path and that's kind of the, the way I was going. And then the moment my sexuality came into play for me, it was really, um, like I really had to go back and re-question a lot of the things. And one of the things that comes up a lot, and I think queer Muslims is that, does God love me? And for me, it's such a big thing to be like, of course he does. Like I never, that I never questioned because my relationship with my God was my relationship with my God. And that never changed throughout the whole thing. But I really had to go back and re-educate my parents 
really close friends. And that all aligned at the same time 9-11 happened, where then we as Muslims had to go back and be like, right, like the Sikhs were getting, like people who had beards and hats, everybody who looked like what they thought a monolithic Muslim would look like would be targeted. So I think for me, that was the first time all of it came together, but it came together at a really interesting time because at that point, every Muslim at that point was, I think all of us were saying, okay, we all don't look like this. We all don't behave like this. Uh, and yeah, so that would be, I think the first time that was a big significant moment for me. Thank you, Shafiq. Tristan, would you like to share? Yeah, Gilri, um, you know, not what I was planning on sharing, but you, you raised something that you said, uh, you know, just on the note of navigating the relationship to Islam as a young person and the feeling like you have to answer sometimes to, to externally to society or to, to non-Muslims on your Muslimhood. And I think, um, you know, for me, the, the time that I really realized, wow, the, things are changing and, and I have to answer to somebody else when I shouldn't have to was 9-11. I remember being 11 years old being in class, see, you know, the teacher actually rolled out the the old school TV that they kind of slide into the classroom and put on the news. And we're sitting there watching this and I'm feeling, I know something is about to change, but I don't know what, as a kid, you don't understand the gravity of what's about to happen to, to you as, as a, as a Muslim. And, and for full disclosure, I, I now identify as a Buddhist, but my, my Muslim heritage is a, a big part of what's gotten me to that point, a big part of, of, my own faith and my own belief. And I think, you know, that that's probably the most, um, the one that's been most impactful. It stood out in a negative way, but the one that stood out in the most positive way is the first time I participated um, in, in fasting in Ramadan. And I remember st- standing next to my dad and we, we go down for prayer. And I, I just remember the beautiful connection that happened where in, in silence, where we're not really talking to one another, we're not really conversing, but we're we're there for sort of communal purpose. There's a sense of union and a sense of, of faith that we, we didn't have to vocalize to one another, but we just knew that we shared. And I think that sense of connection, faith is something that's influenced my own path, you know, coming to Buddhism now and my own path and embracing my Islamic roots as well. I think I'm hearing a very common theme uh, amongst all of us around identity and having to be the teachers, which is interesting. I think we're going to have to bring that back a little bit later. Layla, would you like to share? Yeah, I think I kind of have a, a series of moments throughout my childhood where, as people have been saying, I struggle to reconcile my cultural and religious identity. Um, my dad is not Muslim, he's Christian. And so I kind of felt like I had one foot in and one foot out of the Muslim community. So I kind of had to figure out a way to reconcile my relationship with God personally with my experience as a youth in Canada and kind of how secular that was. And at the same time, figure out a way to make my identity fit into the Muslim community as well. So yeah, a lot of reconciling my cultural identity as a Canadian and my religious identity and relationship with God. Thank you, Layla. And, you know, when it comes to our identities as Muslims or uh, formal Muslims or converted Muslims, whatever it might be, I've heard a lot about us trying to negotiate our own identities. And as you said, Layla, our relationship with God and what God thinks of us for the choices we make. And ahead of that, we also have the representation of Islam in society as very much seen as a singular identity, which results then in the myth of a Muslim monolith in our Western society. And as you all pointed out, Muslims are expected to represent the entirety of Islam, and they face pressure to uphold the reputation of and speak for the entire Muslim 
community. At the same time, though, this view excludes marginalized identities within the Muslim community. Jillary, I'm wondering if you can define for us the myth of a Muslim monolith. What does that mean? Where does it come from? And how could it be harmful? Um, Well, I think that Islamophobia in particular, or the hatred towards Muslims in particular, relies on a single story about who we are. So even I close my eyes and I think about Muslim, I think I have a particular image. I see South Asian, long beard, um, you know, maybe like a a thobe type situation for if it's a woman, also um, brown or Arab in a hijab. And I think that it really does reduce reduce us to a single story about who we are, what we believe in, what our value systems are. um, And, and, you know, our, uh, erases our cultural differences. And it's a thing that I think I have struggled with in particular as a black Latin American um, Muslim from a convert family in in a super dynamic kind of even my own little family relationship. My husband is half Jamaican, half uh, indigenous. And so what does that mean? What does that cultural identity mean to our religious practice? Um, and I feel as though both externally and internally uh, within the Muslim community, we fall into the trap of the Muslim monolith. And the, the challenges that that creates is twofold. From an external perspective, for the, for the broader community looking into the Muslim community, I think it creates, as I said before, a single story about who we are. Um, and often that story is shaped by um, forces of the media, our geopolitics, um, our education system, and really has a detrimental impact. Uh, and, you know, I, I focus a lot on young people, I guess, because I work in the education system, and I see the ways in which um, young people are really trying to push back against, uh, you know, the the kind of extremist narrative that we hear about Muslim communities. But I also think internally we have, we have internalized the single narrative about who can be Muslim, what does it look like to be Muslim, and as a result, I feel like we lose souls. We lose people's ability to have a relationship with with God, regardless of individual um, or kind of systemic interpretations about who can be Muslim, what is allowed, what is not allowed. Um, and, you know, I see this for our our brothers and sisters in the queer and trans community who have want to have a relationship with um, with with Islam and with God in the way that um, they know how, but are often pushed out. I see it with people like me who identify as Black um, and how often the Muslim community doesn't know how to kind of include narratives of of Africanness um, as Indigenous to Islam. And so I do think that the narrative around Muslim, the monolith of the Muslim has really impacted our ability as a community, first and foremost, to understand ourselves as diverse. Um, and then what do you do with that diversity and how do you hold that diversity. Yeah, I, I think that's such an amazing point that you raise um, in that it is twofold. And, you know, we, we can, we'll probably get into all of the external ways in which we experience these pressures. But I think for myself, as as I began to navigate my, my Buddhist identity, um, I noticed a lot of internal pressures within my Muslim community. Um, I noticed my family members or, you know, certain friends kind of, um, in in some senses, maybe just raised eyebrows. And then in more direct senses, people telling me, well, you know, God won't forgive you for this. And that was really hard for me to hear because I, I felt, well, my, my faith relationship, um, you know, with a creator or with something bigger than us isn't something that I felt I should have to answer to to people within my community. But then at the same time, I, I respected these people and, you know, loved them and they were very much a, a part of my life. And so I, I did feel that tension in navigating that. But I think, uh, you know, what, what for the time, maybe at the time for me, what felt like anger as a result of that hurt or that pain from those internal 
pressures within the Muslim community that I was in. Um, I've, I've now come to develop a bit more understanding to your point, Hillary, about how the the lack of acceptance in society for multiple Muslim identities, the sort of pressure to be a Muslim monolith, I think influenced a lot of why those people in my community felt like me breaking away from that or me embracing an identity that's a bit more alternative and that has multiple facets to it was a threat because they they themselves felt like they were under threat. They felt like they couldn't be themselves and embrace their practice. So I, I think that not only is it twofold, but those two spheres, the external pressures and the internal pressures kind of interact with each other. And there's a lot of interplay there that affects whether or not we can really come out and embrace the entirety of our identities. Absolutely. And I think that that internal sort of struggle is something that, you know, I faced as well, right? This internalized racism, you talked about 9-11 and this idea of trying to say, well, I'm not that kind of Muslim. I remember having those conversations as young as nine years old on the schoolyard where there was a lot of confusion, you know, I think uh, of what was a Muslim. Did a Muslim look a certain way? Um, you know, folks would say, oh, your dad doesn't look Muslim. And then they would confuse Muslim with Sikh, right, because of the headdress. Um, and there was the Air India bombing around that time. There was the Gulf War. And there was a lot of questions. And I remember, you know, facing sort of the derogatory comments and having to say, oh, I'm not that kind of Muslim. I'm not a terrorist. And when I look back and, and I just think how awful that is, right, because in itself, as a young person, I was perpetuating this idea that there is a good and a bad Muslim, right? And there's one that, um, you know, is following practices in a way that should be according to what who knows who kind of ascribes, right? And so I think that pressure is really there. And so I wonder then, Tristan, if you can build on that and tell us a little bit about what you think is a way that we can disrupt this monolithic idea and representation of Islam or Muslims and create a space for intersectional and pluralistic Muslim identities. And anyone can jump in after that. Yeah. And I, I, I wish I could say I had all the answers because I think if I did, we would have disrupted it by now. <laughs> but I think this is an ongoing um, conversation for sure. And part of it is what we're doing here today. But um, for, for me personally, part of it has been doing my own spiritual and psychological work um, to really be able to embrace my Muslim heritage as a part of my identity. Um, I think I've had a lot of suppression and shame about it throughout my life and felt a lot of guilt, even just as I navigated my Buddhist identity and, you know, having a Muslim last name, people would make assumptions about me in line with that monolithic identity. And I would feel this pressure of, should I, should I distance myself from that? But then at the same time, feeling like I shouldn't have to, because that is a part of my heritage. So I think for me, it's been really re reclaiming part that identity as a part of myself, not, you know, disowning it. And in doing that and embracing it, um, embracing it in a way that is beautiful, that honors that, that tradition, that heritage, that part of myself, I think that kind of allows me to be um, someone who's leading by embodying the, the faith. And I think that ultimately shows people externally that there isn't a monolithic Muslim identity. But I think the second aspect falls on our allies. Like, I don't think it has to fall on us all individually, um, you know, whether as, as Muslims or as people who grew up in Muslim house, households. I think, um, you know, non-Muslims um, really have an opportunity to take it upon themselves to learn more, to educate themselves, uh, and, and to create spaces, you know, spaces like you've done, Shaliza, but also for people in these positions of privilege, in these positions of power, which we all 
you know, hold different spheres of power um, to be able to, to step in and say, I'm willing to create the space for you to have that platform to talk about these issues. And I think the, the more that we have allies in those positions of power doing that, the more, the more we um, create an opportunity to break down that, that sort of um, uh, myth that there is a, a Muslim monolith. And, you know, maybe just an analogy that this brings to mind, Shaliza, is I have a teacher, Ajahn Brahm, who um, is uh, very well known for advancing the, the rights of women um, uh, in Buddhism, uh, female monastics specifically. And he, he talks about the analogy of a tree that you go into a forest. And um, if you've ever walked through a, an artificial plantation, you see all the trees in a row and there's something a little bit eerie about it. But he said, if you walk into a, a natural forest, you know, everyone will spot a different tree that they love. They'll spot a really crooked tree with something sticking out of it or, you know, a tree that has oddly shaped leaves. And everyone will find that tree that they really feel is beautiful. And they're always the crooked ones. And I think w- when I remind myself of that, I remind myself that it takes some of the pressure off of feeling like we have to be perfect in representing our complex identities. Or also that the world has to be perfect for me to feel accepted. You know, my hope is that we we do progress in this in the sphere of acceptance. But I'm not going to hold my breath for that to happen to feel like I can be accepted. So I think I think um, you know that's something that comes to mind when I think about this question. And I think you know, Susie, you mentioned earlier this idea of teachers. We have to become teachers uh, by default. I think we have to sort of tell our stories, explain what's happening, break down some of those barriers, and also I think it starts internally. You know, just having conversations with our parents. Uh, to let them understand. So I think for me, there's this barrier where like this, there's a generation above us and there's a generation below us. And so it's us educating the generation before and then not taking those stories with us uh, to the next generation and try to make those changes. Uh, but I think storytelling is one of the best places to start. I think letting our kids know growing up, you're like, oh, you ask too many questions, don't ask questions. I think we just have to get rid of that. Let your kids ask as many questions as they want, whatever they need to say, and let's give them the best answer we can in the moment. Uh, these things also, I think, with the monolithical religions, there's a good and a bad. And we're told if we're not good, we're bad. And for me, that is something I've struggled with forever. And I come to a point where I'm like, we're all good and we're all bad. There's moments in our lives where we get to be both and both have to, and we have to be accepted on both levels. None of the scriptures say, I think that the scriptures say <laughs> that if you're good, you're welcome. If you're bad, you're not. Like, I have a really close friend of mine who's a Christian and we, like we, I go to mass with her. She's Christian Arabic, so it's a really interesting place. She understands the Muslim faith really well because her family is Arabic, but they're all Christian. So we we have great conversations in the space where we're talking about like how our religion, both our religions, say the exact same thing, and neither one of the religions say. Neither one of the books say that you're a bad person or you're a good person. It's, it's what we as humans have brought into it. And at the baseline, it all says the same thing too: be a good person, do the right thing. And I think we just have to understand that that is like the basics is where we need to be at. Um, and we're all of us are good and all of us are bad. Those just have to be accepted. That's things that we have to question and challenge and be okay with. Shafik, I, I love that you talked about, you know, going to mass with your, your friend as well. I think that's such a big one. I, I know you, you, you mentioned it, but I think that's huge. You know, I think that's something we should just pause and take a moment to actually talk about and embrace because I think the more opportunities we create to invite other people into our spaces of worship, into our spaces of faith, uh, the more understanding we foster. And, and, you know, it's not that we'll have everything in common or everything will be the same. Of course, there's going to be differences. But I think 
doing that builds these relationships of trust where we can then recognize that these differences aren't threats, they're differences. And there's beauty in that. There's beauty in the diversity that that brings. But I think I think creating these opportunities for people to enter these spaces is is huge. It's so important. So I think, Tristan, thanks for saying that. I feel like one of the things I always hear from my friends or my parents was like, we don't talk about religion. We don't talk about, like there's three things, religion, politics, and there's something else that we just don't discuss. Meanwhile, I feel like my, gener- friend, my generation of friends are like, great, let's jump into those three things first, because that will just lay a platform for us to have a conversation. So, you know, I feel like a lot of things that our parents said back in the day was a protection or a way for them to play status quo. But I think we are a generation and the generation ahead of us. Let's question all those things. Let's talk politics. Let's talk religion. Let's talk. I, I think it's sex. Probably sex, Is religion, like, politics. Oh, probably. <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> Because all the bad things, that's why. <laughs> so I'm Absolutely. so loud. No, no. And, but, but I think I think that's so true. And I, I think that it's it's very interesting. You know, I like your analogy, Tristan. I love what you have to say, Shafik, about really experiencing other cultures um, and religions and seeing how similar we are. I also think that sometimes it's, you know, especially when we talk about 9-11 and things like that, for me, I always felt like, at that time, you know, I was a, I'm still short. I was still 4'11 then. I was 19 and I got stopped at every border. Um, but I got stopped at every border. And so it was for me, I wanted to start wearing a hijab to claim my Muslimness because I said, well, I'm stopped at the border because they see my last name, Jamal. But I want to start wearing a hijab, I, I said to my mom, because I, I really am strong in my faith. And I think that I want people to see it. And I want to change the representation for the world, you know? And I felt like I had a responsibility to say, no, this is not what you're going to do, um, you know, to, to those who practice Islam. But I think it's, it's important to see how we've evolved. And definitely, I think I have faith in the next generation. I know, Leila, you wanted to share uh, some of your experiences as well. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to quickly chime in and kind of say, I think, representation in the media, however you can get it out there is so important because growing up in a post 9-11 society, I was kind of fending off these comments from like my young peers about like, oh, terrorists, this and that. Meanwhile, I wasn't even sure if I was Muslim enough to be saying anything because I didn't fit into this idea of a Muslim woman that was in my mind. And at one point, um, one of my friend's mom said to my mom, oh, like you don't act like a Muslim or you don't look like a Muslim, a Muslim. So I don't know what image she was holding in her head, but it was some shadowy figure that represented all these negative things. And there just wasn't a representation of what I looked like or even what my mom looked like anywhere in the media as a Muslim. So I think it's so important to have different different types of Muslims, Muslims from different branches of the faith, visible in the media to kind of break down that monolithic idea. If I can add to it, I think going back to my original comment about kind of the two-pronged way that this stuff shows up, the external and the internal. I think for sure that our allies who are not Muslim have a responsibility to really understand and get to know the various communities that exist within um, uh, who, who identify as Muslim and whether that's along racial lines or gender lines or um, the lines around sexual orientation or ability. I think that it's really important that folks who are not Muslim um, begin to embark on a journey to really understand us. But I also feel as though um, as a Muslim community, Um, we, and I think that this is a consequence of colonization, of immigration, of trying to find community in a place that is not often welcoming to you. Um, we have created, we have created a, a practice of faith that is so dogmatic, 
um, that, that that loses the essence of what, who we are as as Muslims. What the, what do our teachings say? Um, we focus on the wrong verses. I think um, for me, I think about the fact that the first word that was given to our prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, was to read Ikra. To me, that's the, about the pursuit of knowledge. Right. And why do you pursue knowledge? Because you have questions and you're doubting and you don't know the answer and you're trying to really understand. Right. And so for for that to be the first word that gets revealed to us, um, I think that that's what we should be focusing on as Muslims. And that creates spaces for our young people to ask questions, to not understand, to, um, you know, question whether this is for them or not, what their relationship to to their creator will be. I also one of the other verses that I hold very dear to my heart and I often share with non-Muslims when I'm doing training is the verse that says we have come from different nations and tribes so that we may get to know one another. That's a call to action, right? That's not asking us to be the same, to look like each other, to practice the same, um, to even interpret the same, right? We're, we're being called to know one another. And there's a recognition of our differences, there's a recognition of the different ways that we might practice and the relationships that we might have as a result of that. Um, and so really, I, you know, for the, for the Muslim community, I think for me, our focus in combating or challenging this idea of the Muslim monolith is really is creating space and leaning back on our own religious traditions about what does it mean to embrace diversity? Um, what does it mean to look to be inclusive? What are the rules of engagement that I don't think that we, we focus on because we're so fixated on does she wear hijab? Doesn't she wear hijab? Is he praying five times a day? Is he not praying five times a day? Are they fasting? Are they drinking? And when those things and those individual practices are very, are just that individual and are about people's kind of connection and understanding of the faith um, and where they are in their journey. Really, that was uh, so, so beautifully worded. And um, you just, I mean, my heart sang as I was, as I heard you saying that and and those two verses, um, I was trying to scribble them down as you were talking about it, because I I really want to put that up somewhere in my apartment. Um, <laughs> but you, you made me think of something, um, you know, when, when it was going around in, in the media that people were flushing Qurans down the toilet, which was, you know, atrocious and absolutely terrible, terrible. And I remember as a kid, just feeling like personally shocked by this. Um, when that was going around, one, one of my teachers um, got called and they, they asked him, you know, what would you do if they were flushing holy verses of your your tradition down the toilet? And his first response was, I, w- I would call a plumber because I'm going to need to use that toilet eventually. So I want to make sure the toilet's clear. But his second response, you know, following the humor was that these things are vessels. You know, the the religion, the 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 form of things is vessels. But what really gives life to it is the fact that they're living traditions. It's us practicing. It's us embodying the faith. And so you know, he said, if they came in and they broke up all the Buddhist statutes, I would be sad, I would be distraught, but I wouldn't hold anger in my heart, I would hold forgiveness, I would hold compassion, I would hold empathy. And I think, I think, just to your point, I think it is important that we remind ourselves that these are living traditions, and we have a choice. We have a choice as to whether we're going to tarnish those traditions, tarnish the, you know, the word of God by acting in ways that are that are against that, or if we're going to embody it in a way that's beautiful in a way that really lends to connection to empathy to care and i think that that is really a choice so we're not in these little boxes where we're just one way we're we're condemned to being sinners or we're you know we're glorified perfection we're we really are human beings that get to choose what we want to embody and so 
it really just reminded me of that in a way that was beautiful and really pulled at my heartstrings. So thank you. Thank you. I feel like we're making such great connections just by hearing each other's stories. And I think it's so important. Uh, and I think that, you know, when we talk about this, Jillary, you talked about this earlier and you started to talk about Islamophobia. And I think what happens is that when our stories are individual stories of our practice and our connection to the faith, which don't look don't look the same, rather, um, you know, we don't look the same, but the way we practice doesn't look the same. And it is it is very individualistic. But what happens is we have these systems and structures of oppression. You know, Jillary, you were talking about um, about colonization. Leila, you were talking about the media. And it perpetuates this idea of this stereotypical or uh, monolithic Muslim. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to a little bit, Jillary, how it kind of contributes to Islamophobia, maybe even sharing for folks who may not know what Islamophobia is, the definition, and then how in itself Islamophobia and this monolithic view can then lead to the exclusion of marginalized identities within the Muslim Ummah. I mean, I, I have a working definition of Islamophobia, and I think it, it really does stem from, um, and some people will call it the hatred of, of Muslims or the, the way in which Muslims are discriminated against. Um, but I do think that it, it stems from, again, a single story about who we are as Muslims. Um, and that single story is always crafted in a way that sheds us in a negative light. We're ultra conservative. We have no room. You know, we um, we all interpret the faith in, in, in a, a very conservative way. Um, negative way. Uh, we are um, oppressive to women. Um, we all practice the faith in the same way. We um, all are homophobic. We all are from a particular part of the world. We all speak the same language. And so I think that this, what this does is that it completely erases the diversity that exists within our community and the challenges that people face when they live at the intersection. So when you're Black and Muslim, when you're disabled and Muslim, when you're queer and Muslim, um, those identities often don't exist in people's psyche at the same time. Um, and I think that for those of us who embody those identities, it's really challenging to have to navigate. For me, I think for a long time, I'm thinking about what does it mean to be Black, Latina, and Muslim? How do those things exist at the same time where you have a stereotype of a Black, Latin um, person as overly sexual, superheated, like a, the complete opposite of what you think about a Latin, a, a Latinx woman and a, and a, and a Muslim woman. They seem like such a, such a dichotomy, such polar opposites. So how, when I'm receiving these messages about who I am and all these parts of my identity, do I somehow piece them together? Um, and so I think that for, on a personal level, that ha that's how it has impacted me and my journey and my understanding about how do I practice my faith and also hold on to a cultural identity that I feel very strong and connected, strong about and connected to? Um, so I, you know, I think, I think at the end of the day, it's really about, again, an understanding, an individual understanding of the faith and what, what it, what it requires you to, um, to leave behind and keep. Um, but also I think for the, for the broader community is really to understand that we are multifaceted, that we all are diverse and complex individuals and that's what we are that no one muslim that you know um is the same as another that we all have even within the same family right my my siblings understand um islam and their relationship with the creator in very different ways than i do right from some who are like completely questioning on the borderline of like agnostic to others who are way more conservative than i am and that's in one single family so i think that it's it is important for the broader community to understand that we aren't the same and that 
when we're fa- many of us when we're facing Islamophobia, we are facing it in tandem with other oppressions based on our identities. And Guillory, if I can jump in, just just to your point, if if we refuse to accept these monoliths, we stand on the precipice of an infinitely more complex world. And I think um, that can be scary for a lot of people. Like our our brains, from an evolutionary perspective, are hardwired to make snap judgments and decisions and to categorize things. And like, you know, if if you're staring at a set of eyes in the dark, you need to know if that's a raccoon or if that's a lion. Like there is value in that from an evolutionary perspective. But I think that the trade-off, the sort of catch-22 with it is that it also makes you, it also makes you, you know, live in a world that's extremely dull where everyone fits into these little categories. And it, it oversimplifies the reality of this universe that we live in. And I think, you, you know, there there are 2 billion Muslim people in the world. Obviously they don't fit into those categories of just like everyone is the same. Everyone fits one identity. But I think what I encourage people to do, whether it's allies or even not allies, just folks who, who, who might be curious to learn more about these types of conversations is to embrace fear, is to embrace being in that state of discomfort because to, to deal with something that doesn't fit into your model of categorization feels threatening in a way. It feels like it's something that, that, um, you know, as a threat to your safety. And so I think the more people can embrace being in that space of discomfort, that space of fear, the more we we challenge this and we get into a world that maybe doesn't fit all of our neat little categories, but is much more beautiful and much more flourishing. Maybe I'm romanticizing it, but I really feel like this is a problem of the West. Like I feel as though coming here has made us interpret our faith in a particular, or forced us to interpret our faith in a particular way. I remember one of my very first trips to the Middle East, I went to Egypt and I was so surprised at how diverse people practice hijab, no hijab, niqab, turban, this, that, and the other, right? And I, you know, for me, I, I've been a hijabi since I was seven and, and it's always, there's been an ebb and flow with that relationship. I've wanted to take it off at some point. Um, but I always felt like it was the only thing that anchored me. And it was really interesting to go um, to a place where everybody automatically, most people identified as Muslim um, and somehow were kind of allowed to be in their diversity. Um, whereas here, I feel as though to Shaliza's point about 9-11 and wanting to, you know, claim her 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 position as a Muslim and kind of wave it, I feel as though that what that has done is even made us internalize this very singular definition. Um, that I, like you said to your point, it's it feels impossible when you have what one billion Muslims across the world. How how could we possibly be the same and see everything through the same lens? Yeah, and Jillary, to your point, I really think it is about I, I noticed that as well with a lot of communities, not only Muslims, that as we move to the West and we, we've experienced colonization perhaps in our own countries and we're here as settlers, I feel like there is a longing to hold on to culture and tradition, not necessarily related to religion, but those cultures and traditions are often interwoven with our religious practice. And there is a need to kind of hold on so tight for that fear of losing it. And I think that sort of perpetuates this binary idea like you talked about and like many of you talked about of what Islam is and isn't what is a good and a bad practice of Islam and I think that's really important and in this way this monolith kind of sometimes comes out through our own community and so I think you all mentioned really great points about how we can sort of um, disrupt and start to become more aware and broaden our perspectives and I know that Jillary you also mentioned and you started to mention this intersectionality uh, of Muslim identities that we have. You shared yours. And, um, you know, Shafiq, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about 
building on that about Islamophobia and how Islamophobia then interacts with uh, other facets of individuals, Muslim identities, for example, homophobia or transphobia, um, or, you know, as Jillary talked about, the experiences of Black Muslims, uh, Latinx Black Muslims, um, Indigenous Muslims, LGBTQ2S plus Muslims. So, Shafiq, I wonder if you have any experience or you can share with us what you think uh, happens when we have a multi-layered experience of phobias. Yeah, no, thanks, Shaliza. Um, I'll speak for all gay Muslims. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> sometimes I like to be funny. No, thank you for asking my question, Shaliza. I think, you know, when those things layers up, when those things start layering up in your life, when like all of a sudden you're a gay Muslim, like who's from Kenya, but born, but heritage in, in uh, India, but looks Arab and doesn't necessarily have a typical Muslim last name. Like I feel like all those things, you know, for me, we're a, again, I think, I feel like 9-11 was such a big thing in life for me where like when that happened, all these identities and all these things that I thought I needed to hold on to shifted really largely for me. I mean, my, so in my family, we, we all, we all look the same. We all look like these little South Asian kids. Like there's such a, like what is these smiley kids who look very similar to each other. And I feel like for most of my life, that's who I was hanging out with and that's who I was a part of. And then when I came out, that changed a lot for me. And a lot of the stuff that, a lot of my own internal homophobia came out. And that was a huge thing where I didn't, so I didn't think that was going to happen. I always pride myself on being an artist. So I'm creative. I think outside the box, all these things that an artist is supposed to be, I thought I was, but when it came to my own sexuality and it came to my own religion, I really didn't break out of some of those things. Uh, and I think we all really struggled through that. So uh, I, all of us, but I think definitely in the queer community, that's been a big thing where I would go to uh, support groups uh, and we would talk about this all the time where people were like, okay, well, what does Allah say about me? What does Aga Khan say about me? And people would be reaching and dying to just have some higher power or some person in a place of authority say, you're okay, I love you. And I remember that being such a, I used to be so mad at people about that. I was like, what the, f-? like, I was mad at them, but I was also because that was my only way of self-defense for myself, right? Because I was like, this is what I'm holding on to. This is what I, this is what I need to hear from the rest of the world for me to justify what's happening. And I think as I get older and get more immersed into these worlds, I think what uh, Jillary said earlier is you're right. I, I mean, Jillary and Tristan both said was like, we're multifaceted. We are all these different layers of things that, you know, we, as someone who came from Kenya to Toronto, I remember like in my first year in grade eight or nine, they were like, oh, are you gay? And I was like, I don't know what that means. But in Kenya, we would, like, I would hold hand, like being affectionate, being, holding somebody else's hand was never a thing that defined my sexuality. You know, my parents were like, great, this kid wants to go dance, let him go dance. This kid wants to cook. Like there was, you know, my parents were like, how much can we, how much can we give him so that he can be a fully realized human? It was only when I came to Toronto that was like, oh, if you're more than this, it means you're this or this. And it wasn't about me. It was about the other person trying to figure out how to categorize me. And it'd be interesting to go back to all my high, my junior high friends and sort of be like, so tell me more about what you thought this was. Uh, but I feel like we live in a world now where like non-binary exists. Like, and you know, like, like we, None of, those, none of those categories matter anymore. Like something's blown out of the world. It's in the beautiful space where like, where, where parents, our generation are taught to think differently, we're presented differently. I mean, I still think like our trans brothers and sisters have such a long way to still go. 
and again, only in North in North America, it's the weirdest thing because like if you go to Pakistan, you go to India, trans people are were put on pedestals. I mean, even in the indigenous community here, whatever they found trans were put on a pedestal at that point. It was this colonization method that put them down in a different, you know, that that categorized them as a lower human or as a non-definable place. That um, so while I think we're in a better place, and yes. We are multifaceted. We are all these different parts. You just have to sit and be okay with that. And I think when we challenge some of those things for other people, we're actually challenging those things within ourselves. And we have to just really start with our own work. It's not an easy piece, but I think just starting small, small, starting slowly with our own with our own pieces will add to where we can hopefully be in a better place. I hope that answers the question. I feel like I got very excited about the whole thing and rambled on. <laughs> no, I think it's good. And I think you bring about, you know, a couple of things that I, I've heard common themes is about that fear um, of belonging and, and being included, but also the fear of getting things right, uh, whatever that means. And then that validation and wanting that validation. I am okay as an intersectional Muslim, as an intersectional human, right? Because we know that, um, you know, these are the stories we need to hear and we need to feel that validation as human beings and how do we get that? And so I think by sharing our stories and by understanding that there is no one way to practice Islam, to look like a Muslim, to be a Muslim, it, it can be fluid, right? In, in those ways and um, having these discussions. I know that, uh, go ahead, Tristan. Yeah, it's really powerful to hear you sh- share that, Shafiq, because, you know, when when I came out and told my my dad, I said, I'm, I think I'm Buddhist. I, I think he... Um, it, it was like he had lost someone. It was like it was like someone had died for him. You know, it was it was a really emotional moment for him, and I I didn't realize it till later. I had so much hurt and so much anger towards him, but a lot of that was just the fact that I wanted to be accepted by him, and I I wanted you know him to tell me yes, you are good enough, no matter what you tell me you are. And I I don't think it was until later in therapy that that came out that I then was able to embrace. Oh wow, I am good enough you know, even without that acceptance. And the the irony of that is that once I did embrace that, we were able to develop such a flourishing relationship, like our relationship is amazing now. And there is that acceptance there. So I agree with you wholeheartedly, I think just working at the level of personal acceptance, you then, you know, are true to your authentic self, and the people around you recognize that and they, you know, they want you to be happy, ultimately, so they do accept that too. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to bring up, uh, you know, a very current issue that is heavy on my heart, and that is the conflict in Israel-Palestine, the genocide of Palestinian people. And I want to talk about that because you talk about this fear and this validation, and there's so much going on. There is uh, this notion of, I don't want to take sides, and then there's folks who are really taking sides. And there's so much going on right now, which for me is like, a moment of reckoning similar to 9-11 was a moment of reckoning. I feel like we are at a moment of reckoning now. And I'm wondering if any of you can speak to what you think or how you think this myth of a monolithic Muslim is impacted by or has impacted even the conflict that is happening in Israel and Palestine and how it might be viewed globally. And maybe if you've been reading, you know, newspapers or on social media, how you think it's being reflected in journalism, whether it's formal or informal? I think it's a tough one to talk about, Shaliza, because, um, and even even for me, working in an education system, um, 
it's difficult to come out as pro-Palestinian um, and not be seen in a particular light. But I think that it is important that A, we acknowledge the ways in which the the um, conversation around the conflict can be highly polarizing, mostly around um, you know, Muslim and Jewish lines, as though the Muslim community um, uh, represents uh, the Palestinian people in a particular way, understanding that not all Palestinians are Muslim. There are many Jews, there are Jewish people who are Palestinian, there are many Christians who are Palestinians. So it's not a Muslim-Jewish issue. And and in the same way, I think um, the Jewish community suffers from um, the myth of the monolith as well, and that you know not all Jewish communities um, support what is happening. It makes me nervous to, to talk about it like this, but I think that for any of us who are serious about reflecting on the role of colonization in this country, the role of anti-Black racism in this country, the role of um, racism and imperialism in this country, then we have to do some work to really reflect on how what is happening currently and what has been happening for half a century um, between Israel and Palestine um, is connected to kind of a broader struggle against racism, against colonization. It's connected directly to our conversations that we're having here about um, the treatment of Indigenous communities, the displacement of Indigenous communities, truth and reconciliation. Um, And I know that that feels, it's super scary and jarring. And I think, um, you know, it is important to note that a criticism of the Israeli state is not a criticism of Jewish people. Um, it is just that in the same way that as we criticize Saudi Arabia for its treatment of marginalized communities, the way that we may, may criticize Iran or um, the U- U.S. for its treatment of marginalized communities. Um, and that's not like inextricably linked to um, how we feel about the people of those countries or the face that those uh, the people of those countries practice. Um, we should be seeing it in those similar ways. But I think that it is, it's super polarizing. And I think people are, are really trying to sift through the narratives that we're getting through the media, through our politicians, um, stories from our, from our, um, from our family on both sides. Um, it, it becomes challenging to know how to have the conversation in a way that moves us forward um, instead, instead of keeps us stuck in these kind of dogmatic ways of talking about this conflict. <laughs> so I know earlier I said I did not want to talk about this and I feel like I was such a hypocrite because I said, one of the things you want to talk with your friends are politics, religion, and sex. Uh, and I think, Julia, you brought up a really great point. And for me, I, I'll take a media lens point of view on this one because that's my background, is that the media does this for us. Like from the get-go, mm-hmm. it's, Israel versus Palestine, but it's the Jews versus the Arabs. Yeah. Okay, well, then you just, you've already language-wise, you've done like, here's a religion versus a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. The, like, I think this already based in our language and how media is portraying some of this shit already puts us in a, in a spot where we aren't, we aren't speaking the same language. It's mixing things up. So we can't even, I think just from the, from the very basic level, we just need to be all talking about the same language. Like, if you're going to, if you're going to peg one religion versus another, then talk about it in that way pick a side, be controversial, let's do it. But if you're going to talk about a country versus a country, then talk about those people and realize that in those, in those, in both those places, there are people of different religions living there. And it's not, it's not a religion thing at that, like, it's not a religion thing at that point. So I think we also, like the media also have played such a shitty role or, I mean, not shitty, they're doing it very purposefully <laughs> to make sure that the information that's going out there is, is done is done in this way that causes conflict. So we're not speaking language. You're not speaking to us in the right way. And you're perpetuating these stereotypes and these, and this fear. I think fear is a great way to, to go with that. So 
my two cents. Um, I just think with um, social media, especially in the way like there's these bite-sized pieces of news coming out, it's so sensationalized for views and clicks and for monetization. And so these media organizations are profiting off of creating this like religious dichotomy and religious conflict as opposed to actually getting into the nuances of the situation. And it kind of gets everybody up in arms about religion, which is just such a sensitive topic. And it's because the media kind of feeds into this oversimplification of the narrative. And I think that's just a really damaging part of how media works right now, especially over social media. And and I know we've done a lot of talking about <clears throat> identities throughout this podcast so far. Um, and this might be a little bit controversial to state, but I think sometimes it helps to go beyond identities. Yes, our identities inform our day-to-day interactions with people, but if we take a moment and just go beyond who we think we are and we just look at the fact that there is a human being on the other side of the world who's holding their baby right now because their baby's been killed. Like when when you look at it in that way and, and you get past this kind of like dialogue about like, you know, Israel versus Palestine, Jews versus Muslims, just look at the fact that there is a power structure that is arguably much more powerful than its opposing enemy and that is bombing civilians in addition to militants and there are people human beings dying like when when you contextualize it in that way i think some of these boundaries that we we create in our minds about who is worth caring about and you know who is our people kind of fall away and then it's really just it's really just pain it's suffering compassion empathy and i think those are those are traits that for me personally i i want to embody more than any particular identity yeah, and I, I'm seeing a lot of uh, youth, you know, whether it's high school, university, um, anyone who describes himself as youth, a lot of youth engagement to share this type of information, particularly through social media platforms, to gain awareness and to talk about the humanity that um, we need to be uh, fostering and building and not about choosing sides. And, you know, Leila, I know at your university there's been a lot of work to be done and there's a lot of work that is being done to really understand um how we can build this knowledge and then also how we can get involved and you know there's been a lot of uh, i think conferences around diversity equity inclusion um there's been a lot just going on this year can you speak to a little bit of that community organizing that you see on the on the youth and post-secondary front yeah absolutely so i think sometimes as a student it gets kind of difficult because you're not sure how to really make an impact in your position. You're, you really want to help and contribute to these causes, but you're just not sure how. Um, so I find that what a lot of my peers are doing are they're kind of organizing educational conferences and panels and things like that, because that happens a lot at university, just to get the word out and to help people get a better understanding of the conflicts and the issues that we're talking about. And I think that's so valuable because a lot of times education and programs are a little bit Eurocentric and they don't really touch on these issues at all. So there's a big gap in education there that I think my peers are are working hard to fill, which is great. And another way, a little bit of a less formal way that I see community organizing is a lot of my peers have been organizing protests. So for the Black Lives Matter protests, there are some that are even coming up this weekend. Palestine protests in Toronto, it's kind of a way uh, for us to make our voices heard without institutional power, which we generally don't have at such a young age. And then you also brought up social media, we've been kind of finding over the past year or so that it's such a powerful tool to show which causes are important to us 
And it ends up having significant ramifications because it bleeds into the media as they start to report on these waves of activism and posting. And that bleeds into kind of the the mainstream thread of media and it gets politicians' attention. So that's kind of how students have been organizing and using our voices lately. It is a beautiful thing to see young people democratize the way that we um, receive information um, and and not necessarily leaning on the more traditional ways that news is um, is shared to understand the world around them. Um, you know, I think that what we're witnessing is um, a clash of, of multiple moments. We're coming off of uh, a bit of an awakening around issues of anti-Black racism and police brutality. Um, and, uh, you know, the conversations about race, I think, have shifted in, in many institutions. We see it, you know, even at the school board, the conversations that we're having about the system in itself being inherently anti-Black, being inherently racist, and the work of the institution to move the conversation in light of that, I think, has lent to a lot of people who may have not understood um, what is happening in 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 Israel uh, and Palestine right now? Before they've, it's allowed them to look at it through a different lens and ask questions in a different way. Um, and I think that that's always the hope. I don't know. I hope that in our lifetime we will see a situation where Palestinians have the right to return and that um, folks can live um, in in harmony, both Palestinians and those who are who are there from the Jewish community. Because I also acknowledge that you know there is a lot of hurt and trauma. Um, you know, many people from the Jewish community are survivors of the Holocaust um, or or have family who are survivor of this uh, of this really tragic, um, hateful event. Um, and I I want to honor that that that's a reality for a lot of members of the Jewish community um, and that I hope that in our lifetime that we see kind of a reckoning and a reconciliation between um, these two communities that have have experienced a lot of hurt but I think you know the democratization of the ways in which we see media have has allowed people to ask new questions and different questions about what's happening over there but also making the connections between what's happening there with what's happening here with our indigenous communities, with our black communities. Um, and I think that that kind of global perspective um, has helped shift the conversation a little bit, I hope. Absolutely. And I think that's a, a great way to conclude today is uh, having some critical hope. I think that, you know, our, our, our youth, as well as a lot of our community organizers are really uh, working with this momentum of this movement and all of us can uh, to have these conversations and to take action in whatever way that is. And today, you know, we were able to share your stories. And as Tristan said, there's 2 billion stories of what a Muslim experience and identity is. And so um, I thank you all for joining me today to talk about how we can uh, identify and then disrupt the myth of a Muslim monolith. Um, thank you so much for sharing your authentic and vulnerable uh, experiences of fear and navigating and negotiating identities and of seeking validation. I really appreciated your time and learned a lot. And I'm hoping that our listeners will learn a lot and continue to do the research and do the work, um, whether they're Muslim or not, to think about um, the pluralism and the richness of the Muslim identity and beyond. So thank you very much. Trigger warning. Since recording this podcast, the Muslim community has experienced several hate-motivated 
Islamophobic attacks across Canada. On Sunday, June 6, 2021, the Salman family was targeted in a hate crime against Muslims in London, Ontario. Members of the family spanning three generations were struck and killed by a 20-year-old white man named Nathaniel Veltman, who fled the scene. The only survivor in this tragedy is Fayaz Salman, a nine-year-old boy. While he was seriously wounded in the attack, he is expected to recover, but is now without his parents, grandmother, and sister. This devastating attack has rocked the Muslim community, not only in London, Ontario, but across Canada. Since the attack, there has been a rise in anti-Muslim hate crimes across Canada, specifically targeting black Muslim women who wear hijabs. Islamophobia is deadly and impacts all of us. Now, more than ever, we must come together to go beyond awareness to take action to fight Islamophobia together, regardless of our religious beliefs or affiliation. The National Council for Canadian Muslims has accrued more than 35,000 signatures on a petition calling for all levels of government to condemn Islamophobia. Parliament has also voted to convene an emergency national summit on Islamophobia as sought by many civil society groups. You can do your part by continuing to learn and educate your community, disrupt stereotypes, contact your local elected officials, advocate and support local Muslim community organizations. If you or someone you know is experiencing trauma as a result of a hate crime, call or text one 866 627-3342 to reach Nasiha, a Muslim youth helpline across North America, or contact the Coalition of Muslim Women at www.cmw-kw.org to access volunteer mental health services. If you want to report a hate crime in Toronto, you can call 416 416- 808-3500 to reach police officers of the hate crime unit through the intelligence service. We will list more resources and links in the show notes. Thank you for listening.